0: Well, we start off our sermon this morning with a short history quiz, all right? What was started to be built in the night, in, in the deepest, darkest of night, in August 13th, 1961, and was started to be torn down in the deepest, darkest of nights on November 9th, 1989? It was 96 miles long. It was first made of a fence. And that was made with barbed wire and later was, later was turned into concrete, 12 foot high and 4 foot wide. They were told that they were uh, being built to keep the people out, but in reality it was being built to keep the people in. Some 3.5 million people had left the one side for a life of freedom from the other side before it was built. In its nearly 30 years of existence, some 5,000 people attended to escape over it or under it, and some 600 lost their life. One side was full of graffiti, the free expressions of a free people. The other side was guarded with 300 watchtowers. The other side in an area that was called the death strip, with raked sand rendering footprints easy to notice, anti-vehicle trenches. Beds of nails, watchdogs, and signal fencing. I'm sure that many of you have figured out what we're talking about. What is this illustration? Talking about the Berlin Wall. The wall in East Germany that separated East Berlin and Communist Berlin from West Germany from free and democratic Berlin. The city literally cut in two overnight. Families separated. Homes boarded up. Subway tunnels permanently closed. But as the years passed, the hold that the Soviet Union had started to wane, opening up unrest and uprisings in Poland and Hungary and other Eastern Bloc countries. As Premier Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev started this new campaign of openness, President Ronald Reagan in a speech in front of the Brandenburg Gate, commemorating the 750th anniversary of the city of Berlin, on June 12, 1987, challenged the Soviet leader with those famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, the unrest under communism continued to grow from country to country. Eventually, it spread to East Germany, and there were these large demonstrations for freedom. At the height of the peaceful rebellion, as they called it, On November 4th, 1989, over a half a million people gathered in East Berlin to rally for change. On November 9th, the East German government announced that they were going to open the crossings from East Germany into West Germany, including into West Berlin. The Eastern government was still thinking that they were treated like any other crossing from any other country, into any other place. You would need your papers and you would need your passports and such. But the masses reacted completely differently to the news and they powerfully and overwhelmingly reacted. When the news was broadcast that night, hundreds of thousands of people from East and West Berlin flooded out of their homes and to the wall. The guards were completely overwhelmed by the huge crowds and they put down their weapons, and at 10.45 p.m., they freely opened all the checkpoints, allowing the people to cross. The wall was breached. The celebration began, and that very evening, the wall started coming down. I can still vividly remember watching this celebration on TV as all of this was happening. It was just a few short months after that, that Germany was reunified as one. The wall fell, the country of East Germany fell, and after 45 years, the two countries were reconciled and became one. The dividing wall of hostility was destroyed. Peace was realized, and the two became one new country. This is a great illustration concerning what we are going to talk about today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It's about how the Gentiles, how you and me became fellow citizens of the household of God. How, as verse 14 puts it, the wall of hostility is broken down. How Jesus brought peace and reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles by making us into one body, his church. Today we're going to look at three realities of the peace of Christ. The first is in Ephesians 2:11 through 12, it describes what situation the Gentiles were before Christ did his amazing work on the cross for all people. Follow along as I read. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at that Paul has discussed salvation of sinners in general, applying to everyone, but now he turns to the work of Christ for the Gentiles in particular. Most of the converts in the church in Ephesus were Gentiles, and they knew much of of God's program in the Old Testament, that it was about the Jews. You know, for centuries, the circumcision, that is the Jews, had looked down upon the uncircumcision, that is the Gentiles, with an attitude that God had never intended them to have. The fact that a Jew had received a physical mark of the covenant was no proof that they were a person of faith. The Jews had lost sight of the fact that God was looking at their hearts, that God was looking at their faith, not their outward self-righteous actions. Romans two twenty-eight and 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You see, the Jews boasted in their position with God rather than in their responsibilities before God. They wanted all the blessings of God by just being a Jew on the outside. But a real Jew, a a real follower of God, it is always and has always been a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by our actions. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 describes God's choice of Israel so beautifully. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's sovereign choice filled them with pride and arrogance rather than with humility and service. God chose Israel to be a holy people. That means a separate people, a set apart people. They weren't special The God that they served was special. It wasn't because of something that they did or something that they were. God chose them because he wanted to, because he loved them, and because he was fulfilling his word. Israel was set apart as a people to be an example of God's grace and to attract people to God. The wall separating the Jews and Gentiles was supposed to be more like a chain link fence with a whole lot of gates. Israel was supposed to be a display of God's work for all to see. The Gentiles were supposed to be able to observe God at work in the nation of Israel and then come into a relationship with that God by becoming a proselyte Jew. Throughout the Old Testament law, God made specific application of the Old Testament law to foreigners. For example, in the most sacred celebration of all, the Passover, we read in Exodus chapter 12, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the institute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. At first, it kind of sounds like the foreigner, the Gentile, is totally excluded from celebrating the Passover. But that's not true. That's not true at all. They first had to come to faith in God by showing their full allegiance to God and by being circumcised. They could partake of the Passover just like the Jews. They were to be considered a native of the land. You see, God always made provisions for the foreigners. For the Gentiles, they were not excluded. But in the Old Testament, they had to become Jewish. They had to commit to follow the Old Testament law. Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 says, talking about the nation of Israel, it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. God wanted there to be a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. He wanted the difference, not so the Jews could boast, but so that they could be a witness to the truth about the one true God, so that they might be a blessing and a help to the Gentiles, that they might be a channel of God's revelation and truth to the Gentiles. It's sad to say that Israel never really embraced their calling as a nation to be a light to other nations. Well, the application here is apparent for us. Like Israel, God has chosen us. God has chosen you and me. God has chosen us to be followers of him. God has adopted us into his family. God has placed us in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus our Lord. He didn't do all these amazing things and so much more for us so that we could be happy, so we could be content, so we could be filled and rested, and just sit there what God has given to us. To whom much is given, much will be required. So it was with Israel, and so it is with us. God has lavished his blessings upon us so that we could give it away. God has given us life so that we could die to ourselves, so that we could give other people life. God has given us hope so that we can endure hardship and pain and difficulty, so that we can give other people hope. God has given us love so that we can serve and give without getting or wanting in return so that we can show other people God's love. As Israel was called to be a witness for God, so are we. Jesus says to every believer today, from his own words in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Israel failed at being a witness for God. How are you doing? How are we doing as a church, as a witness for God. Are we resting in what God has done for us? Are we taking our faith and our responsibilities seriously and being a true witness for God? Paul then goes on there in verse 12 and calls the Gentiles to remember five specific things that they lacked, five specific things that they didn't have that Israel had. The first privilege they lacked was In the Old Testament times, they were separated from Christ, it says. Literally, this means they were without a Messiah. They had no national hope of a Savior. Secondly, it says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were excluded from citizenship with all the joys and the privileges that that brought. Thirdly, they were strangers to the covenant of promise. The Gentiles were deprived of direct participation in God's covenants and thus had no future hope, and no future glory as the blessings of Israel did. Fourth, it said that the Gentiles had no hope. The Gentiles had no anticipation. They had no expectation of a coming personal Messiah that would deliver them and save them. Fifth, it just comes right out and says that the Gentiles were without God. No Messiah, no citizenship, no covenants, no hope, and no God. The Gentiles were separated, alienated, strangers, with nothing and without everything. Folks, today, as we live, we are surrounded by people that are just like that. No hope. No God. Separated, alienated, strangers of God. Israel had everything. And they sat on it. And they hoarded it. And they stood in selfish pride. What about us? What are we doing with the great blessings that God has given to us to a world around us that has no hope and no God? That brings us to our next point. In Christ, we are one new body. Follow along as I read in Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. It says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 13 starts off with a key word, just like verse 4 did in chapter 2. They both start off with that contrasting conjunctive word, but. In both of these uses, this contrasting conjunction word tells for us the situation that of the previous verses is dark and grim and difficult. And then someone invades the situation and radically changes it. And then someone shows up and changes everything. And then someone comes to the rescue. Then someone risks it all to save those that are in such a dire, desperate, and impossible situation. That person is our Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you ones who were far off have been brought near By the blood of Christ. Jesus breaks through the terrible situation and takes what is far off and brings them near. He takes what is separated and brings them together. He takes what are not citizens and he makes them full citizens. He takes those who are outside the promises and gives them great promises. He takes those who have no hope and he gives them real and eternal hope. He takes those who are without God and he gives them a relationship with the one true God of the universe. How did he do that? How did he make that happen? The verse tells us. It says, by his blood. He himself was a sacrifice that made it all possible. As verse 14 says, he is our peace. He didn't just give us peace with God. He is our peace with God. He brought the peace for the Gentiles with God. He brought peace for the Gentiles with the Jews. He brought the peace with us, with God. Jesus made both Jew and Gentile one and the same because he had broken down the wall through his body, through his death on the cross, that dividing wall of hostility. He did it through his sacrificial death, through being our peace, taking the just wrath of God for our sins, and he did it by fulfilling all the requirements of the Old Testament law, as it says for us in verse 15. Jesus created something new, the church, his body. And verse 16 and 17 says that he created one new man in a place of two. He reconciled both Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church, through the cross. You know, when Herod at the Jewish temple in Herod's day, there was a three to four foot wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the actual temple. And on this wall there was a sign that gave this warning that if a Gentile crossed past this wall, they would be killed. The temple temple itself was beyond that wall. The sacrifices of God were beyond that wall. The holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies was beyond that wall. So what did Jesus do? Jesus tore down that wall. Jesus opened up full access to God, the God of the universe for anyone and for everyone. One of the greatest historical moments of my life has been literally watching Soviet communism fall under its own weight. What does freedom look like? Those days of the celebration on the Berlin Wall was freedom on display for all to see. But folks, to steal a phrase, freedom without Jesus is just another wall. You see, freedom without Jesus is just another wall. There is no greater freedom, none on planet Earth, than the freedom Christ brings through his death on the cross. Jesus Christ tore down that wall. Jesus Christ tore down that wall and brought us, who were far off, near to God. He brought us peace. He brought us reconciliation with the one true God. Jesus not only tore down the wall that separated us from God, but he tore down the wall that separates us from each other. Jesus tore down the ethical and racial and ethnic and gender and economic wall, making us all one in Christ. Galatians 2, 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus tore down a legal wall because he fulfilled all the Old Testament law, ending that separation between Jews and Gentiles, fulfilling the purposes of the Old Testament law, and instituting this new thing that we celebrate today called the church. We have to keep in mind how radical this is. In Ephesians chapter 3, we will see that the doctrine of the church was a mystery of God that was just now, for the first time, being revealed and fulfilled. For centuries, the Jews and Gentiles were separated, and the only way a Gentile could be brought near to God was by becoming a Jew, by faith accepting and following the Old Testament truths. Now the truth has been revealed that the cross of Christ is, condemns both Jews and Gentiles as sinners alike. That we're all on the same plane. But the cross of Christ also reconciles both Jew and Gentiles alike into one body, the church, of those who believe on Jesus. Folks, Jesus is in the business of tearing down walls. Jesus is in the business of bringing together what has been separated and far off. Jesus is in the business of reconciling two to one, us with God and us with each other. Oh, folks, the reality is that we are the ones who build the walls. You see, we are the ones who separate ourselves from God. We separate what God wants together. We take one and we break it into many pieces. Some of the most godless things we do is cause separation, is to build walls in relationships, is to take what is supposed to be unified and riddle it with conflict and division. Proverbs 6 so powerfully says, there are six things the Lord's hates: seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that I have haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates pride, lying, murder, scheming, revelry, false testimony. And number seven, what does God hate? One who sows discord, one who separates, one who builds walls, one who causes conflicts and division among people who are supposed to unconditionally love each other. Some of the most godless things we do is causing separation. Some of the hardest pain in our lives is when we are on the receiving end of someone who is causing separation and hurt and conflict, who is building walls, who is sowing discord and bringing separation. I've witnessed no greater heartache than when a marriage ends and flagrant infidelity and total disregard for the other person. I've witnessed no greater sadness than when families are torn apart by irreconcilable relationships. I've witnessed no greater pain than watching a church divide, brothers divide and sow discord amongst themselves. God hates it when we sow division among those we're supposed to love unconditionally. But guess who came to tear down the walls? Guess who came to bring what was far off and to bring us together? Guess who came to make the two one? Jesus came to break down the walls. Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus came to bring reconciliation. Jesus came to bring unity to the lives that we have fractured. First with our God and then with each other. Or well, perhaps this morning you're dealing with the effects of someone's choice to build walls and to create discord in relationships in your life. Perhaps you're the one who are building the walls. Well, today is your day to go to the master wall breaker. Today is your day to go to the healer of wounded hearts. Today is your day to repent and find the strength and to address the issues that are hurting and sowing discord. Today is the day to go to Jesus, the master reconciler, who has reconciled us to God and ask him to help you reconcile and break down those walls of separation. Today is the day. Well, our last point this morning is that through Christ, we are made one by the Spirit. Where verses 13 through 17 were about what was accomplished in Christ. For the Gentiles, verses 18 through 22 is about what was accomplished through Christ for the whole church. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 18 and following. For through him we both have access in one spirit to to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Through Christ we both Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you remember that it's the work of the Spirit that created the church? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit who makes us one church, one body in Christ? Is it the work of the Spirit to equip and to gift the church for service? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 12-13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The church, the body of Christ, is the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting every believer, Jew or Greek, no matter what your ethnic background is, slave or free, no matter what your economic or societal standing is. In our passage today, Paul uses three pictures to describe this unity, this body of Christ, this coming together. The first is that we are one nation. We read that the Gentiles were once strangers and aliens and outside of the commonwealth of Israel. But through Christ, we are one in the Spirit, and we're now fellow citizens, it says, fellow citizens with the saints. It also says we are one family. We are all members of one household of God. I love the challenge and the sentiment of Galatians 6.10. It says, so then, we as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. As believers, we're supposed to do good to everyone. But we're especially supposed to do good to those who are sitting around us, to those who are in the household of faith. There's a whole other level of love and service that God wants us to give to each other as Christians, as the body of Christ, as his church. We all long to be part of a church that is like that. Well, lastly, it says that we are one temple. That Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that temple. That he is the one that all the other parts of the temple get their meaning from. He sets the strength. He sets the plumb line. He starts it and ends it with Jesus. The teaching of the apostles and the prophets is the foundation of this new temple, the church. The work and their words recorded for us by the Holy Spirit in our Bibles give us the sure foundation for a powerful and unwavering church. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. First Peter 2 calls us, you and me, living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. You see, we, the church, are the structure. We are joined together to build a spiritual house, this holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22 powerfully ends us, this passage, by telling us Why this unity, why this church, why this oneness is so important? Because we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Remember how in the Old Testament, how it describes how God dwelt in the tabernacle and how God dwells in the temple? Well, in a similar way that Paul is teaching us here, that we, the church, are a dwelling place for God. Do you want to discover God in your life? You can find Him at church. Do you want to experience God in your life? You can find Him at church. Do you want to know in a deep and more meaningful and intimate way our God? You can find Him at church. Think about it, folks. We, the church, are the very habitation Remember from our first sermon of the year, the one thing that makes the church distinct and unique and special and exceptional is the manifest presence of God. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. You see, there's something different. There's something special when God's children gather together as his church. God is here, in our midst, in a real, significant, and special way. What a privilege that we have to be the very habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us here in Ephesians. We thank you for what Jesus has done amazing, breaking down the wall of hostility, fulfilling the Old Testament law, making us, uniting us together as Jews and Gentiles, as one, as his body, as his church, bringing reconciliation and peace with God the Father, and through the Spirit, through the Spirit in our midst, to the Father that we would be a habitation, a dwelling place for God. Lord, we pray. Church is supposed to be different. Church is not supposed to be like other things we experience. Church is supposed to be a place, not only where where you are honored, where the word is preached, where one another passages happen, but church is supposed to be a place where you show up and you do your work in our lives. And Lord, we pray that for our church. We pray that for each one of us. We pray on this day that you would comfort us and challenge us, convict us, help us to know not only our reconciliation with you, but in those broken, shattered relationships of our lives that we would be believers and follow your truth and bring Jesus into them and bring healing and reconciliation in those relationships. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word and for what it teaches us today. In Jesus' name, amen.